0: Welcome to the KrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keogh School of Global Affairs.
1: Greetings. My name is Mahan Mirza. I serve as the executive director of the Ansari Institute for Global Engagement with Religion, based in the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm also a teaching professor and a member of the Kroc Institute's faculty. I'm very pleased to serve as moderator of this KrocCast episode, focused on the future of Iran and U.S. relations at this critical juncture. I have with me two esteemed colleagues. The first is Azarine van der Fleet Olumi, Associate Professor of English and concurrent faculty in the Department of Romance Languages and Literatures here at the University of Notre Dame. Azarine also serves as a Kroc Institute Faculty Fellow. Among other topics, Azarine specializes in the literatures of exile and resistance, Middle Eastern literature, and ethics and aesthetics of the novel. She's the author of the novel, Call Me Zebra, winner of the 2019 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and the John Gardner Award. Also joining us today is George A. Lopez, who is the Reverend Theodore M. Hesburgh, CSC, Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies at the Kroc Institute, where he was also a founding faculty member. George is a leading expert on economic sanctions, peacebuilding, and various peace-related issues, and has dealt extensively with United Nations and United States sanctions on North Korea and Iran in both the policy arena and in his academic writings. Among other activities, he served on the UN panel of experts for the sanctions on North Korea in 2010-2011, and he writes frequently about sanctions policy for the Hill and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Thank you both for being with us for this important conversation. May 8th, 2020 marks the second anniversary of the unilateral withdrawal by the United States from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, commonly known as the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. Since then, among other contentious matters, the US and Iran have marched to the brink of war. And while we seem to have stepped away from the brink, Last week, President Trump authorized the U.S. Navy to fire on small Iranian vessels, harassing large U.S. warships in the Gulf. So to begin, George, what is your analysis of where U.S.-Iran relations are at this moment? And what should concern those who would hope for more stable or maybe even peaceful relations?
2: Mahan, thank you, and thanks for being with us. And Azarine, what a great team I think will be to tackle these these problems. You know, I consider the second year since the withdrawal of the U.S. from the so-called Iran deal as a critical marker, not not a kind of anniversary to be noted, but especially at a time of global pandemic and its impact on Iran and on the U.S., it prompts us to raise some very basic questions about the Trump administration's policies and especially how they continue to feed what I'm reading as a general American need generationally now to have Iran as the great enemy. I don't need for our audience to revisit the various claims that many of us in the arms community or in the sanctions analyst business have made about the the disastrous abrogation unilaterally by the United States of its treaty obligations to Iran and, and the international order when we withdrew from this treaty. But what's been puzzling to me as a sanctions analyst, and now deeply concerning after the withdrawal, the piling on of draconian sanctions, not for the purpose of stimulating any diplomatic dialogue with Iran, but but simply for a purpose of making economic war on a regime and its population in order to change that government, in a sense, without the permission of the Iranian people as I've examined the futility of this maximum pressure strategy employed by the Trump administration, I wonder and watch as our allies try to get normal diplomatic relations that are within the spirit of economic cooperation with the JCPO and with Iran, that they find themselves under U.S. sanctions. It's forced me to wonder what drives this and sustains this kind of policy. You know, I've already known, as many do, of the support in the Trump base for doing away with this treaty, the concerns that Mr. Pompeo and I'd say prejudices brought to his office with regard to Islamic countries and Islamic beliefs. And many of us know well and have traced the, the role of places like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in having a unique ear in the White House to advance its own agenda of regime change in Iran. But what really has kept me up at night as the coronavirus spreads throughout Iran in late February and March was that the Iranian government requested directly of the United States a suspension of the sanctions to permit them to purchase needed medical supplies and to now accept humanitarian goods and relief. Shortly thereafter, it requested a major loan from the International Monetary Fund. The sanctions relief have not been granted, and the IMF loan was blocked by the vote of the United States. So these think tanks and their supporters have won the day in urging the administration to continue its defiance of requests from not only the Iranians, but humanitarian agencies, our European allies, and others interested in relief for Iran. And the logic is pretty obnoxious. It's essentially that the crisis of the virus might now be able to be the straw that breaks the camel's back when added to the maximum pressure sanctions that really have failed, but might now finally, in combination, bring a collapse to the Iranian regime. To now see the news stories that you rightly cited by various sources fueled by conservative think tanks again, that Iran's adventurism might now lead from harassment to a strong U.S. response that we failed to take in their minds in the earlier crisis of the last two months, this has just really gotten out of hand. And the U.S. refusing to remove these sanctions as Iran reels from the coronavirus, the push of the warmongers, this now for me has moved beyond a concern about military or economic or strategic issues and Makes me wonder, how does this go to the heart of cultural and even moral dilemmas regarding how the U.S. citizenry, the Congress, and even U.S. media, by their silence in these situations, help perpetuate that Iran is our eternal enemy?
0: Thank you, George, for that really insightful analysis of not just the the kind of draconian policy that the U.S. has mobilized towards Iran, but also for the kinds of insights into the ways in which the hatred has been mobilized in American culture towards Iranians goes back many decades. And it's timely for us to be having this conversation. And and I'm very grateful to be here with both you and, and Mahan. One of the things that concerns me is a kind of a lack of close reading of the language that has been historically used toward Iranians and the Iranian government dating back to to the 70s and the ways in which there is a kind of condoning of white vigilantism in American culture toward Iran that isn't being acknowledged by the broader population and that the, the hatred that is mobilized actually serves the purpose of further obscuring the draconian nature of U.S. foreign policy toward Iran. And I think that if this kind of vitriolic language were used in America against any other ethnic group, it would be denounced as racist. And what I find to be both really interesting and disturbing is why have we accepted this kind of language? And why do we have the continual need to manufacture an enemy? And what does that say about the American psyche? What concerns me as well is that Iranians are targets of racist hate crimes and discourse. And at the same time, Iranians don't actually have legal access to being able to denounce race-based discrimination because they have been forced in the U.S. Senate to say and state that they are white. While on the ground, the reality of Iranians is one of social browning, one of being alienated and demonized. So I actually thought that it would be useful to share with you guys a few examples of this kind of language and the consistency of the rhetoric and the nomenclature with which Iranians are addressed. So, From President Trump's UN address in 2019, back in September, he stated that it was his duty to defend America's interests. And within the same breath, he cited Iran's blood loss, its menacing behavior, its traffic and monstrous anti-Semitism, and accused Iran of single-handedly destabilizing the Middle East. He's not alone in the use of that kind of language. George H.W. Bush claimed back in 99 that we can't have normalized relations with a state that's branded a terrorist state. And during his State of the Union address, months after the ghastly and apocalyptic 9-11 attacks, George Bush stated that Iran aggressively pursues weapons of mass destruction and exports terror. And that states like these, and he was referring to Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world by seeking weapons of mass destruction, posing a grave and growing danger. And we all know what the actual truth of that claim has been in Iraq and how this kind of distortion in U.S. media has swung between a kind of exercise of soft power against Iran and a more military threat against Iran, as well as a kind of economic war that you're referring to, George, through these sanctions. We are also on the receiving end of language that is extremely destructive to Iranian Americans. It's a very visceral experience to hear the president of your adopted country talk about your homeland by saying things like, we're going to destroy 52 Iranian cultural sites, one for each of the 52 Americans held hostage in 1979. I could go on and on. There have been street protests against Iran for for many years there have been a lot of different media articles published in in even the recent months, as you were saying, from the AEI and the FDD, sort of trying to actually increase and step up Iranian tactics against Iran and encourage acts of war. And that's, you know, both consistent with U.S. history of always having to manufacture an enemy and a kind of psychological dependency on othering a group of people in order to make a claim to white purity, in order to make a claim to America's moral authority and to sort of perpetuate its ambitions for U.S.-led internationalism. But when we look closely at this kind of language, which I consider to be a kind of weaponization of language, a kind of mobilization of destructive language toward a nation which has visceral effects on our psyche, on our emotions, on our bodies, you know, the truth sort of comes to light, that there is an active strategic demonization of Iran.
1: Well, you're each raising some very powerful concerns and issues, Azarine, with your pointing out that the cultural context that drives this conflict is fueled by a weaponization of the language and with words like demonization, a draconian nature of the policy. And George, you also mentioned that this is pretty much warfare. And so I wonder if it's possible to measure the human cost of these policies. In other words, do sanctions kill innocent people? elderly women and children?
2: This is such an important question, Mahan. It began in 1992 as we watched the effect of the first wave of UN sanctions against the Iraqis after the, the first Gulf War. And it's been a matter of concern for the long-term uh, crock project on sanctions about how we measure these things. I think it's indisputable that the impact of general trade sanctions like have been imposed on Iran and were imposed on Iraq are going to take a toll on various social, economic, and I'd say way of life dimensions of people in a country, especially if that country has a vulnerable population. It deprives the government of resources to meet needs and questions of crisis like the coronavirus. And we're seeing that certainly in Iran. The economic indicators are the greatest telling factor of the impact on, on life, even if we can't measure it by by certain morbidity or mortality kind of measurements at this stage. Uh, you know, Iran, if you look at the 10 countries that are most affected by the coronavirus right now, it is the poorest of any of those 10. The others that affected are modern European States or the United States or China or Russia, Iran has experienced as a result of these new Trumpian sanctions, 10% overall reduction in its growth rate, a 30% or more inflation rate that goes up and down. And now the kind of double whammy of the falling out of the oil market means that the small amount of oil they were able to sell to customers like China has produced virtually no income at all. This makes not only the denial of aid particularly aimed at harm of innocent civilians, just like if you would claim that the bombing of civilians was a necessary collateral damage in war, the logic has been of the sanctioners that the people who die of untreated diabetes, the people who don't have heart medications, well, that's the fault of the government for not protecting them enough. It's not the fault of those of us. Who denied the access to these materials? You know, every government has a responsibility in international law to take account of difficulties and humanitarian disasters in its own community, in its own nation. But when those are directly caused by a straight line deprivation of resources, that are what economic sanctions in this case have been about, then that line goes back to that country. You know, it's so odd, Mahan, to see this because even about two years after the second President Bush declared Iran a member of the Axis of Evil, that administration was willing in December of 2003 to pause the sanctions and aggressively, with Iranian cooperation, do airlifts of tons of supplies and let 200 US specialists and physicians in to help with the humanitarian relief from the earthquake. Unfortunately, they weren't willing to build on that diplomatic opportunity, just like the United States now hasn't been willing to build on the diplomatic possibilities that a pause in sanctions and a special outreach to Iranians in this moment of, of kind of shared crisis uh, would create an opportunity. You know, I'm especially grateful to Azarine for raising this issue of language and meaning and the kind of conceptual constellation that's gone on in the United States and has been so accented as part of a general discriminatory pattern of this administration towards Muslim countries, as we know. But it's reached a a new level for me in the way that we have from Mr. Pompeo and the White House, some carefully constructed half-truths and outright declarations uh, that I consider falsehoods about how easy it's been for actors who want uh, as humanitarian agencies or companies to get medicine or relief supplies into Iran. In fact, that's not been the case. The laws have been rewritten to grant direct access to the central bank in new and different ways. But what a humanitarian agency has to do in filling out the nine part form to be able to do that kind of exchange And then wait, finally, for the answer from Treasury as to whether or not in the last five years, for example, you've had any indirect dealings with companies or others that are associated with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. All of that dynamic is not a straight pathway like either President Obama used in 2012 or or President Bush in 2003 to literally help land supplies at an airport in Tehran and to begin a free exchange of humanitarian and medical goods.
1: Well, given where we are, I wonder if each of you could share if or where there are some ways forward for us to lessen the prospects for U.S. sanctions against Iran and to improve prospects for normal relations between these generational enemies. Azarin?
0: One of the things that I think are really fascinating, you know, from my perspective as someone who inhabits language, is this continual need to return 1979, the year of the Iranian revolution. So I was talking a little bit earlier about Trump citing the the 52 sites that would be bombed for the 52 hostages. And when I was reading more recent statements, one in particular by the Department of State, about why the U.S. should not be lifting sanctions during the pandemic, it struck me that one of the points they made was the following. Iran possesses sufficient funds on hand to fight against the coronavirus outbreak. Iran controls hundreds of billions of dollars in its national development fund, as well as Supreme Leader Khamenei's many hedge funds flush with assets originally confiscated from the Iranian people. These funds can be used for government spending. What that's, to me, is something that harms Iranians, but harms America. as well. It's a kind of language of, of trauma. There's a linguistic performance of trauma and this need to continually return to the site of loss and the feelings of vengeance and near delirious that are expressed in response further expose America's inability to metabolize the setbacks and the loss of power that they had in Iran with the fall of the Shah. And I think that even during that moment, there were movies such as Not Without My Daughter that were released in America of this Iranian man who lives in America, has this sweet, caring, respectful relationship with his American wife and daughter, and then convinces them to take a trip back home to Iran. And suddenly he turns into this demon who won't allow them to go back and wants to take his daughter away. And when I think about that movie, I think that was an expression of wound that America. Experience in relation to Iran of betrayal and a kind of feeling that they've never overcome, and they've never been able to intellectually even grasp the new reality on the ground in Iran. We are not known as a country in America for having great with other nations. Thinking about sort of all of the crimes that were revealed in Iraq, like in Abu Ghraib, and the forms of torture that, that the U.S. has exercised, you know, without being helpful, and the kinds of in which they, President Trump in particular, can make such flippant comments about annihilating a nation, removing it from the map. These are deeply destructive modes of, of thought and cultural production. And we talk a lot about mortality in terms of actual physical death, right, which is so important to try to account for for the mortality rates that have risen in response to these sanctions, both during the pandemic and otherwise. I think it's also important for us as Americans to exercise some empathy as we experience having to be in quarantine or exercise social distancing and the rise in depression rates and a sense of hopelessness and the fact that some of that has to do with an inability to actually be able to visualize your future or to predict it. Now, if we could use this, our imaginations, to think about how all of the youth in Iran have that feeling permanently because of the sanctions, because of their geographic and cultural continual alienation from from the West and the powers that be, the inability to be able to plan from one month to the next, one year to the next. And that creates a kind of, I think, metaphysical death, a kind of collective depression. And we do have a responsibility towards that as Americans if we're going to continually make claims to our extraordinary moral authority in the global realm. So I would just like to invite Americans to to maybe begin to connect the dots and to not experience the language as isolated from the policy or the policy as isolated from U.S.'s own bad behavior in the Middle East historically, which is continually obscured. And we can talk a, a lot about that, but I'll, I'll turn it over to you.
1: Yeah, we can also talk about So many dimensions, including the media and the role of the media. But what about you, George? What do you think is the way forward?
2: Well, I want to build from Azarine's great comments because that particular set of documents she cited is is so instructive with regard to the manipulation of language and the portrayal of certain dynamics. Where three weeks ago, the Trump administration had no problem about stating clearly what it has for the last 21 months, and that is the maximum pressure sanctions have impoverished the regime, made it impossible to have financial dealings overseas, emptied the banks, emptied the coffers, collapsing of the regime is is on the horizon because of the way they have been squeezed. And then you have this document come out, which talks about them being a flush with cash and can't possibly need an IMF loan. That IMF loan request, by the way, was the first in 60 years that Iran had made, unlike so many other countries that in dire financial straits had relied on them. This duality and manipulation of policy and language to play to the moment reveals no central real policy other than we shall keep a foot on your neck until you choke to death, which is in itself just a technique. It's not a policy. And the dilemma that this administration has faced in dealing with, let's say, legitimate security concerns Iran has of the United States and the US has of Iran. We have catapulted this into a civilizational battle that is looked at in zero sum terms. And the casting of language and the conceptual, subtle and not so subtle, as Azarine points out, characterization of Iran as the enemy means that we've never had in the US Congress, certainly seldom in the media, not in US universities or in US law, the building of a constituency for Iranian thinking or a constituency for raising questions about the singular condemning position of American policy in a way that is unheard of when you look at the changes culturally in our attitudes towards Russia, towards China, towards any number of other people or states over time, certainly over a more than 70-year period that we've had with Iran. You know, Robert J. Lifton, the great social psychologist, said years ago that you only have as many enemies as a culture can handle, but you also sometimes latch on to one that you can always go back to in moments of uncertainty or crisis. And Iran has become that psychologically for the United States. Sometimes it's couched in religious difference. After 9-11, it could be encompassed under big conceptualizations of here-be terrorists lurking in Tehran, and by extension, our own mistakes in Iraq that gave Iran a strategic advantage in the region, we now see as ideological and various other things, as opposed to just a straight diplomatic and, and logistical victory for the Iranians that we gave them. And I think the the reversing of this and the changing and the, the reconstituting of, of appropriate language and conceptualization as Azarine has very much portrayed as our need, this is an important moment in the United States for us to think about this. I'm not myself very persuaded by the Democrats, if I might say, seeming to think that the only thing one needs to do in remedying the difficulties of the last four years is to restore the JCPOA. We need a complete rethink and a re-engagement with Iran in which we say the damage done back and forth is so dramatic that we need a reset that can only come with continued open frank dialogue that has already taken sanctions, war, and other uses of force off the table as rational policy in the 21st century and let us build from there. So that's my hope. It's, It's a hope steeped more in aspirations than an empirical reality in the American system at this moment. But what I like about this wonderful opportunity to do this Crockcast is we can lay this out there and begin a subject for debate for the media, for academia, for religious organizations, and, and dare I say, even the U.S. Congress.
1: That was George A. Lopez, Reverend Theodore M. Hesburgh, CSC Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies at the Crock Institute, with Azarine van der Fleet Olumi, Associate Professor of English at the University of Notre Dame. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Mohan.
0: you have been listening to The Crockcast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of The KrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our show, which will help more people to find us. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.